Love to welcome you again for a second time to City Life. We're glad you're here. I'm one of our pastors, uh, Brett Wiley, so I'm glad that you're worshiping with us. I do want to give just a little bit of a preface before we get started this morning. Um, If I am speaking about Jesus at some point or joy or grace, and I'm doing it with a grimace on my face, it's because I'm in a lot of pain. My back is really hurting. I just want you to know that. It's not because I don't love Jesus or I don't like joy. Right after Andy had to go and talk about mortality on Wednesday night and how he has back pain when he wakes up, all of a sudden I decide, I'm not going to give it away, but on Thursday night I decide to try to do something that I thought I was 25 years old still and I didn't realize I'm 35 years old. So uh, I'm in a little bit of pain. So if I start to fall over, Craig Dossie and uh, Casey Smith are going to come and hold me up as we preach, Okay. Well, we really are glad you're here. Isn't it a joy? Is Cade here yet? Cade's right there. Isn't it a joy to celebrate baptism? To celebrate new life in Jesus? Cade, this is a special day. We're we're glad we got to celebrate with you. Well, last week, Andy started us on what's going to be a long and, I believe, fruitful journey through the Sermon on the Mount. This beautiful, wonderful, and often confounding teaching from Jesus that he gave his disciples and us. And Andy began by helping us think about the best way to approach the sermon and really to think about what it is and what it's not. It's not simply a list of rules of the things to do and not do that either get you into the kingdom of God or keep you in. It's not some setting up some kind of two-tiered Christianity where the sermon only applies to pastors and priests, and professional Christians. It's not only a vision of a future kingdom that we can't in any way experience now in this life. And it's not only an impossible ideal meant to show us our sinfulness and expose our need for God, although there's certainly some truth to that. So if it's not all those things, what is it? And Andy helped us see that It's an invitation, an invitation to the way of the kingdom and ultimately to a life of true and lasting flourishing. This is the meaning conveyed by the Greek word makarioi that begins each of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 1 through 11. It's a word that's translated as blessed in most of our English translations. This is Jewish wisdom language. It conveys the idea of flourishing, a a state of happiness, or a way that leads to wholeness. So theologian Jonathan Pennington explains that Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into a way of being in the world that will, resu- that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. And maybe that sounds really nice to you, but you find yourself asking, what on earth does that mean? What does it even mean to experience flourishing? What does real human flourishing look like? How, how do we experience it and how do we step into this invitation that Jesus is offering us? Those are some of the questions that I hope to answer today. And I think we find the answer in the whole of Jesus' sermon and teaching, but also here specifically in the Beatitudes. It's an answer that I hope you will come to see is good news. And it's not only what we need, but it's, it's what our world needs. 
As we look at our text this morning, I want us to see three truths about this idea of flourishing. First, that flourishing means becoming whole. Second, that flourishing is an inside-out process. And third, that flourishing is an already but not yet reality. Before we dive in further, let me pray for us. Father, we know that nothing good will come of this time unless, Holy Spirit, you speak, unless you move, unless you soften hard hearts, unless you open closed ears and open closed eyes. Lord, we need your help. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have to say to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I receive uh, regular updates from a missionary family in South Asia that we are connected to. And I just received one on Friday that, that spoke to this, but one that stuck out to me was a few months ago. The update read this way. Earlier this week, the police raided the home of a leader we work with closely. The leader was out doing ministry, so they beat his wife in front of their two sons. The police trashed their home where they gather for worship, destroying kingdom resources and breaking their personal possessions. They looted hundreds of New Testaments and full Bibles stored in their homes, along with their laptop, sound system, and other electronics. All those in the home were then threatened. <coughs> Excuse me. Then they also found out that this was happening with other groups across the state. Persecution. Persecution. If we're honest, the vast majority of us in the U.S. have never experienced it. At least not in the way that this brother and sister in South Asia experienced it. We're thankful for our religious freedom, and we should be. And when we hear stories like this, I think we feel inspired. I think we think what faith they have to, to persevere in the midst of such harsh circumstances. But I don't think many of us, if any, were to hear a story like that would say, man, that that is flourishing. That's what flourishing is like. That's, that's the good life. No, we wouldn't typically associate flourishing and the good life with things, or no, forgive me, we typically associate flourishing the good life with things like comfort, with safety and security, with pleasure, and with generally happy circumstances. But in our text, Jesus says something confounding. He says to our brothers and sisters in South Asia, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And you're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. And you have to think, what? Jesus, did I hear you right? Is that what you meant? Surely you meant to say inspiring are those. Or, or, or faithful are those who are persecuted, but not, but not flourishing. How can Jesus say to those who face persecution and insult because of their allegiance to him that they are experiencing the flourishing life? Well, there are a number of things said in, this, in these verses that I think help answer the question. But I think the first thing we need to see that will help us understand this paradox is that Flourishing means becoming more whole. Flourishing means becoming more whole. Emily and I often meet with couples for premarital counseling. 
which we love doing. Now, I think if you ask any of the couples, a couple of which are, still, are in here this morning, what, what kind of were the main emphasis from Brett and Emily as they talk about marriage? I, I bet that probably two of the things that would come up were, one, they emphasize covenant relationship over consumer relationship. And two, they emphasize the fact that marriage is more about our holiness than our happiness. I know that neither of those statements are original. We steal every good thing that we say. Let's be clear. But at some point, we will say something to the effect of marriage is more about your holiness than your happiness. And if you aim at holiness, you usually get happiness thrown in. But if you aim at happiness, you usually get neither. Why this emphasis? Why, why would we emphasize this? Because if you don't know what marriage is, and you don't know the why behind marriage, when you face the difficulties that are inevitable, inevitably come in marriage, you might be tempted to jump ship. This isn't what it's supposed to be like. This person can't be my soulmate. I'm just going to get out. Similarly, if you don't know what flourishing is, if you don't know what the flourishing life is, if you don't know the why behind it, then when you face the difficulties of persecution and trials that Jesus actually promised us that we would face, you might be tempted to think something's gone wrong. I must not be doing this right. If you don't know the real why, flourishing will only feel possible in happy, comfortable circumstances. And that's why I start with the point that flourishing is becoming more whole. So what do we mean when we say whole or wholeness? Verse six is important here. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Understanding what is meant by righteousness in this verse is key to understanding wholeness and flourishing. Because if you've been formed by the Reformation, as many of us have in this room, when you hear the word righteousness, you run straight to the Apostle Paul. But Paul and Matthew are using righteousness in slightly different ways here. Not in ways that contradict one another, but in emphasizing dif different aspects of life, of the life we are offered in Jesus, in a way that really complements each other. When Paul refers to righteousness, he's usually referring to imputed righteousness. That is the righteousness that's credited to a person through faith in Jesus. This is what he's saying in Romans 4, 5 when he writes, but to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. This is the language of justification by faith. The moment where God declares someone righteous, holy, and blameless on the basis of the finished work of Jesus and not by works. But this is not how Matthew is using the word righteousness primarily. And that should make sense to us because we've already said that the Sermon on the Mount is not about how we get in, if you will. It's not about how we get into the kingdom. It's about life in the kingdom. It's not about how we become a disciple. It's about what the life of a disciple of Jesus looks like. It's not a step-by-step -step process of how we attain flourishing. It's a description of the flourishing life. So what does Matthew mean when he uses the word righteousness? Pennington is again helpful here. He says, in sum, I define righteousness in Matthew as whole person behavior 
that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. The righteous person, according to Matthew, is the one who follows Jesus in his way of being in the world. The righteous person is the whole, the teleos person, which will come up again, who does not only do the will of God externally, but more importantly, from the heart. Jesus puts it this way a little later on in his gospel. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying, love me with your whole person, with, with everything that you are. So as Margaret Pamet observed, for Matthew, the disciple is he whose dedication to God is total and single. It is undivided. We live in a fractured, fragmented, divided world, don't we? We see it every day, constantly, through the news and through social media. We're, we're divided globally as nations war against nation. We're, our country is divided nationally as politicians and parties demonize one another. And our society is divided socially as anyone with a different opinion is labeled as an enemy. As people mock and slander one another online. And as people are canceled for one wrong word or step. But if we only see this, this division, as a problem for those really bad people out there, and we don't see this as an issue for us really good people in here, then we will miss out on some of what Jesus is offering us and inviting us into in the Beatitudes. Because if we're honest, I mean, if we're gut level honest, we feel this fractured, divided nature in ourselves too. We want to be kind and then someone cuts us off in traffic. We want to be forgiving and then someone betrays us and wounds us. We want to be patient and then we have kids. We want to be pure, but we desire comfort and settle for temporary pleasure. We want to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, but we can't figure out how to give up our idols that steal our allegiance and affections. Paul gives words to those feelings in Romans 7, 18 and 19, when he says, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. That may be wrong on the screen. This is the struggle we all feel in the flesh. We are fractured, divided people living in a fractured, divided world. And listen, Jesus wants to make us whole. He wants to make us whole. Isn't that good news? Jesus, I want to be whole. This is the righteousness that he's telling us to hunger and thirst for in verse 6. This is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. In 520, Jesus will later say to that group, you are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That hits home, doesn't it? It does for me. Jesus is saying you do a bunch of religious things that make people think you have it all together, but on the inside, you're a sinful mess. You read your Bible reading plan, 
and you go to church and you're in seven different small groups, but your heart is angry and lustful and jealous and judgmental. And Jesus is saying, and that's not the kind of righteousness I want to give you. I want to give you more, so much more. Jesus wants to make you whole where there's an integrity between what's on the outside and what's on the inside. He wants to break down the walls of your fragmented heart and make it all his. He wants to make you more fully human. And that brings us right back to the first of the three Beatitudes, doesn't it? Because when you hear that, you go, blessed are those who know they are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn their sin and brokenness and the brokenness of the world. Blessed are the humble who understand their desperate need for Jesus. More on that connection in a moment, but Jesus wants to make us whole. That's the righteousness that we're to yearn for, to hunger and thirst for, because ultimately it means being more like him, the most whole, most human person who ever lived. So so what can this look like? This isn't exhaustive. But wholeness looks like being fully secure in who you are because you're living out of your secure identity as a son or daughter of the Father. Wholeness looks like being a non-anxious person in a hurried and anxious society because you know this is your Father's world. Wholeness looks like taking joy and doing an unseen work for Jesus because you feel his joy. Wholeness looks like being brutally honest about your sins and flaws because the kingdom of heaven is yours. Wholeness looks like contentment in the midst of persecution and harsh circumstances because you know you belong to a kingdom not of this world. That is flourishing. That's the righteousness that we're to yearn for. It looks like dedication to God that is total and single, a real unity between what's on the inside and what's on the outside. But, but how does this happen? How can we be whole in such a way as this? That brings us to our second point, that flourishing is an inside-out process. It, hey, listen, it would be bad news if I said everything I just said and said, okay, go do it. Go be whole. Go do the Beatitudes. Just go do it. Because again, if we're honest, we know that these are, th- these are not things that we can just make happen in and of ourselves. For sure not in the whole person way that was just described. Verses seven through nine say, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. It could be said, at least in some ways, that these beatitudes are more external, more relational, more horizontal in nature than the first four. Mercy is something we extend to others. At least one aspect of purity is is honoring others with our eyes and minds. Peacemaking is done in relationship. So you could hear this and you could go, all right, I'm just going to go out. I'm I'm just going to be more merciful. I'm just going to go out. I'm going to put up all the systems I'm supposed to have in place so that I can be pure and honor those around me. I'm just going to try to be more peaceful. I'm just going to go do it. Those are not bad things to want to do. They're actually good things. But if we approach life with Jesus like that, it will only be a crushing yoke and burden. It will only be law. 
we might be able to keep up this outside-in approach for some time. And some people go, look, you're doing so well. You've got it all together. But on the inside, we'll still be the sinful, insecure mess that we were at the beginning. That's not the life of flourishing and wholeness that Jesus is inviting us into. And that's not the kind of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. That kind of righteousness can only come through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And that always happens from the inside out. It's always inside out. Notice the connection between the first Beatitudes and the ones we're looking at this morning. To be overly simplistic, notice the connection between the internal and the external. It is those who are poor in spirit who will be merciful. Why? Because the poor in spirit understand and are honest about their own sin and brokenness. So they don't, so they don't, they don't hold other sin over them and against them. They don't say things like, well, at least I'm doing better than him or, or her because they know that it's always there, but for the grace of God I go. They don't judge non-believers or struggling Christians because they know that the only difference between sinners is not in nature, but in degree. So they extend the same mercy that's been given to them. And it's those who mourn over their sin and brokenness of the world that will be pure in heart. Purity of heart here is close to the idea of wholeness that we've been discussing. Daniel Doriani says, purity can mean inner moral holiness that is opposite of external piety, and it can mean simplicity and freedom from double-mindedness. To be pure of heart means to live without compromise. In Jesus' house, men and women seek purity and single-mindedness. We shun dual loyalties. We do not serve two masters, God and money. So think about it. Those who mourn will be pure in heart because as Paul says, there's a, God, there's a type of godly sorrow, godly grief that leads to repentance and turning more fully to Jesus. Those who mourn their sin and brokenness will give more and more of their own hearts over to the lordship of Jesus. Those who mourn steward their money and stuff in a way that serves the kingdom and others because they aren't controlled by a desire for more and more wealth. Those who mourn seek to honor honor image bearers with their minds and their eyes rather than consuming their flesh for pleasure because they want singular affections for Jesus. And those who are humble or meek will be peacemakers. Why? Because those who are humble or meek don't see the need to assert themselves or, or platform and proclaim themselves at others' expense. They don't need to win arguments because they know that real strength is found in not having to win. They can, be genuinely, they can genuinely listen to people and seek to understand. Why? Because they know that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, as C.S. Lewis said. They can be a person of peace, a non-anxious presence in the world because they're living submitted to a sovereign God who doesn't need their help in running the world. It is Jesus alone, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that can do this work in us. Only he can work that sort of transformation in us from the inside out. And while justification, hear me on this, and while justification is in a moment, the kind of righteousness and flourishing that Matthew is talking about is a process. It's a journey. And, and someone here said, amen. Someone said, that's good news. Thank you, Lord, that it's a journey and a process. 
It's important to remember that. Discipleship. Our life with Jesus is not like one of those graphs where it starts in the corner and just goes steadily up, always continually moving up in a diagonal direction. That's not what it's like, right? Can anyone say amen? It's not. No, the graft of discipleship, the journey towards holiness looks more like a lot of ups and downs and some circles. And sometimes we loop all the way back to the beginning because this is how the Lord does it. He takes people down, he picks them up, and then life knocks them down, and he picks them up again. And then he says, hey, I want you to be more like me. And then we're not, and then we're reminded of that, and we desperately depend on him more. And this just keeps happening. This is discipleship. It's messy. Listen, if you think about what we've been talking about Jesus, Jesus' ministry so far, even like the people who are coming to him, our city group was talking about this a couple weeks. If you're going to be near Jesus, it's going to be messy. The real Jesus. You can be near a certain kind of Jesus and it will be comfortable and safe. But if you're going to be near the real Jesus, it's going to be messy. Because he's going to keep saying, hey, I want to do something with this place in you. I know you've been keeping it back there, but I want to do something with this. And sometimes, for me, it's like, well, I feel like I'm pretty merciful. I'm doing better. I'm more merciful today than I was three years ago. But then someone does something to hurt us deeply and wound us. And like the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, we say, hey, hey, pay me back. And then we throw them in the prison of our unforgiveness. And then some point, this is, this is why it's good. Listen, folks, this is why it's good. Then some point later on, because the Holy Spirit is good to do this, in his grace, like the prophet Nathan to David after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, the Holy Spirit will tell us a story through a sermon or through scripture or through a song. And we'll be, we'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he'll go, you're the man. You're the one. And that's grace. That's grace because it loops us all the way back to knowing that we're poor in spirit, to seeing ourselves honestly. And then God gives us the ability to forgive because we see how much we've been forgiven. That's what the journey towards flourishing in holiness looks like. If we're honest, you okay, <laughs> If we're honest, it's often painful, right? This can be painful. But as the author of Hebrews says, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So flourishing is growing in whole person righteousness. And it's an inside-out process. It's a journey, and it'll take a lifetime. And finally, flourishing is an already-but-not-yet reality. An already-but-not-yet reality. Earlier in Matthew 3, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals, he himself will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Listen, Jesus is the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, all who turn to him in faith. And Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Hey, some of us need to hear that through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's possible to begin living the flourishing life that Jesus is offering right now. Some of us need to hear that. And as we said at the beginning, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are not simply an impossible idea. 
in and of ourselves, they are impossible. In the flesh, in our own strength, it is impossible to be consistently merciful. It's impossible to be singularly pure of heart. It's impossible to be genuine peacemakers. But earlier, when Joel baptized Cain, he told Cain that he was buried with Christ in baptism. And then when he raised Cain out of the water, he said, you're raised to walk in newness of life. And I'm just wondering, do we believe that? Do we believe that he's really raised to walk in newness of life? Cain, someday you're going to go to college. And some really smart professor is going to tell you that God's not real, if you go to one like I did. Um, and then you're going to have to say no to a lot of things. And at some point in college or sometime, you're going to say, it feels like I have to say no a lot more than I get to say yes. I see all these other people and they seem to be winning at the game of life and it feels like I just have to constantly say no. And I just want you to know, man, that it's possible. It's possible and it's worth it and his kingdom is already, but not yet. Because right after this place in Romans 6, he says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is free from sin. Friends, do we believe that? Do you believe the verse that was just read on the screen? Do we believe the word of God and live like it's true? I'm preaching to myself now. Hear me, I'm preaching to myself because there have been moments where I've heard Jesus say things like, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart or love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you or blessed are the merciful or blessed are the pure of heart. And I've thought, that kind of life isn't for people like me, people who consistently fail and consistently mess up. Lord, there's no, there's no way. That kind of life isn't for people like me. But if you look back at the first of the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying that's exactly who Jesus is saying this life is for. People who struggle and consistently fail are the exact type of people that Jesus is inviting into his kingdom, inviting to experience his kingdom. Excuse me. Those who are poor in spirit and are honest about it, those who mourn over, the sin, over their sin, and those who humble themselves before him. It is to those kind of people that the Holy Spirit gives a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a longing to be more like Jesus, to be more fully submitted to him and his will. That kind of life is really available to us right now. That's, that's the already reality. But let's close by reminding ourselves that flourishing is also a not yet reality. It is really true that you can grow and change and become more whole in this life through the Spirit. It's really true. It's also true that you will never completely be whole in this life. We will never fully arrive. We will never not have Nathan and David moments where our sin is being exposed to us again. And sometimes, if we're honest, sometimes that not yet reality can be really tiring, can it? It can be really frustrating, really wearying. And we, we cry out like the psalmist, how long, O oh Lord? How long in this mortal body? How long in a world full of injustice? How long, O oh Lord? But I want us to see today that most of all, that the Beatitudes are not a list of demands. They're not a set of rules. <clears throat> They're not even conditional if-then statements. These beautiful paradoxical blessing statements are irrevocable promises for every disciple of Jesus 
for all who are in him. As Frederick Dale Bruner says, the great reversals heard in the original Beatitudes ought to be taken seriously. The kingdom of God belongs to the despised weak people who are unable to defend themselves. The marvelous consolation of the world to come is promised not to those mildly uncomfortable with the present world who seek refuge in a dream, but to people who suffer and weep and sigh. God shall wipe away every tear from our eyes. Revelation 7. So for one more time, if you're, if you're kind of sleepy, can you wake up for one more time? Can you hear these Beatitudes as certain, secure, imperishable promises for you? Can we do this together? Weary Christian who is willing to be embarrassingly, embarrassingly honest about your proneness to wander and given to indwelling sin, yours is the kingdom of heaven. To the one who mourns over the sin you see in the world, who weeps over the evil and injustice that you're confronted with daily, you will be comforted. To the one who knows you own strength and power and platform, but who doesn't leverage it for yourself and your glory, but leverages it for others and God's glory, you will inherit the earth. To the one whose life and heart feels fractured and divided, but yearns to be made more whole, to be more fully surrendered to the will and ways of Jesus, you will be satisfied. To the one who's been deeply wounded and mistreated by others, but seeks to extend mercy because they know the mercy they've been given, you will receive mercy. Tired Christian who feels exhausted by the battle with the flesh and temptation, but who strives to give their allegiance and affections more fully over to Jesus, you will see God. To the one who seeks to make peace in a world in the midst of skepticism and hard hearts and sarcastic tongues, you will be called sons of God. And to the sister in South Asia who was beaten in front of her sons, And to the brothers and sisters who worship in the underground Chinese church with constant fear of government raids. And to the Nigerian Christians whose homes were burned and family and friends were killed on Christmas Eve this last year. The kingdom of the heaven is yours. The Beatitudes are a promise. They're a promise. And a reminder that everything sad will come untrue. That one day Jesus will return as, apostle, as the apostle John said. We know that when he appears, we'll be, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. On that day, we will be completely whole, fully human because we'll be like him. The Beatitudes promise us and assure us that that day is coming. But in them, Jesus also invites us to step into the life of flourishing now, to become more whole in him now. Will we respond to his invitation this morning? That's my question. Let's pray together.